What happens when we face difficult conversations? These conversations can heal. They can foster forgiveness. They can inspire and change perspective. Lean into these stories and discussions. I think both our guests and our listeners will find value in them. And selfishly, I know I will too. All right, everybody, welcome back to this episode of Lean In. I'm here with Dr. Ashley Walker. She's an associate professor and a psychiatry residency program director. We're colleagues, but in the last couple of years, I think we've become pretty close friends. And to be honest, the reason we have become pretty close friends is because of an action that she took. And I don't want to get into the details, but there was a reply all that was inadvertently sent to a large group of people. And there were some things that were said that were hurtful, borderline, discriminatory, maybe even racist. And her response was the loudest and the most direct. And it was something that I've always told her that I've appreciated. And I knew her, but I said, I want to know her even more. And I want to be friends with this lady. So we have developed a relationship. We work on several things together at our medical school. And she is probably one of the biggest allies for social causes that I know. And I get a lot of questions about, well, you know, from people who want to help but don't know how to help. And I thought, who better to maybe help answer those questions than Ashley? So, Ashley, thank you for spending your Sunday morning to come chat with me. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here and honored. And it's nice to hear those words from you. I don't think I realized at the time what an impact I was making. So I appreciate that. It was a huge, huge impact. So let's just kind of start by because you've been called an ally. I think you would consider yourself an ally. How would you define allyship or being an ally? So I think that this is tough, and I want to first say that someone can't self-identify as an ally. It's not something that I can appropriately just call myself. I can want to be an ally. I can try to be an ally. But I think it's it's something that can only be bestowed by others onto you. And it's not a title that that is given and just continuous, right? It's something that you have to keep working on. And at times you might be acting as an ally and at other times you might not be acting as an ally. So I think of an ally as someone from a privileged or an advantaged group who is in a continuous process of learning, self-education, self-reflection on their intentions, their impacts, their actions. But then To be a true ally, I think, involves action. So taking that next step, you can't just stop at self-education. It's it's what are the next steps? What are you going to do in your own life and, you know, the world around you, either, you know, for individuals or at the system level to dismantle the structures of oppression? And so this can be obviously for, for any group or identity. It can be race, LGBTQ+. It can be for religion. I think here where we're talking about racial allyship and in the U.S., I think we're going to be talking about white allies working to dismantle racial systems of oppression. 
And I think it's important to, to say this or maybe ask this question. I have some thoughts and I'll give them. But why is it important to have white allies? And my initial thought, I want to hear yours, but my initial thought is, you know, people of color have been fighting and screaming forever. And you could argue to no avail. Right. And so why is it important for us to have allies that are white? So I think that in our country, sometimes we think of racism as a problem with or for people of color. And I think that that's not the right lens, right? I think that racism is a problem that's created by white people and maintained by white people and the systems of power that we've put in place. And it's both the power and the responsibility to make the changes and make the fixes lie within white people, right? It's not going to be fixed until we white folks see it as our problem that needs to be fixed. And you're right, this work is exhausting. People of color have been doing this work since forever, right? And and I'm just now getting started in it, and I'm already exhausted, right? I kind of think of it, you know, we're in, in healthcare. I, I think of it as, you know, when you're doing CPR, when you're doing chest compressions, and that's really hard work. And you know, after a while of doing chest compressions, you step back and let somebody else take over, right? Because no one person can just do it alone, right? Because the work is exhausting. And I think most white folks have been privileged to not have had to do this work, right? And so for me, I think of it as, you know, I'm fresh and energetic. I'm ready to step in. I need to to tag in and it's my turn to be doing this work. That's a great analogy. I've never heard that. And it makes me think of doing chest compressions. And not only is it exhausting, after a certain point, it it hurts and it's painful. And that's why I really think this is a a great analogy, because this process has become not only exhausting for people of color, but painful for people of color um, with everything that has gone on. And it gets, I think, a, a brighter light shown now than it ever has for obvious reasons. And I do think that's a wonderful analogy that really hits on why we need help, right? And the goal is the same. We're trying to save lives. I mean, ultimately, right? Like this is a matter of life and death. And that's not an exaggeration. It's not hyperbole at all. Well, you know, it is a process, right, allyship. And everyone begins the process at some point. And everyone has different motivations of why they felt it was time to begin that process. Um, Do you have a time or a tipping point uh, in which you said, I need to do more? Yeah, for sure. I think that I started thinking about these issues probably 2017, 2018, 19. And then, but really it was the murder of George Floyd in May 2020 that I, I know that was a tipping point for me. I know that at that point, it, it just became impossible to not act. My conscience wouldn't let me. I knew this is big. This is like, I can't just sit here. And that started me down this, you know, the long process of of self-education and learning. And then you learn more things and you continue to grow and expand my friend circles and expand my exposure to folks of color and their friendship and their writing and, and everything. And that was maybe the first catalyst. And then I would also say that in the last year, I grew particularly close to a black man, not you, just in case you're wondering. (laughs) (laughs) 
I was not, but that's okay. <laughs> just to be clear. <laughs> and that deep relationship just allowed me to better see the world through his lens and really gave me the impetus to view my world and what it could be very differently than I had before and really make thinking about race, my own race or being white, on a daily basis, right? Just as I'm sure most people of color think about their race on a daily basis. I think that's a it's a privilege that white people have had to not have to think about on a daily basis. And so this just made me, you know, go even deeper and, and think more habitually about these issues. And I also just bring that up as a catalyst because I feel that that closeness changed something in me to where I really just can't imagine not working toward making the world a better place for him, right? Just having that that personal connection is another driving force for me. You and I both do a lot of teaching and talking about implicit bias, and I think about intentions and actions. And particularly in this context, I think about how some people who want to help have this fear that they have really good intentions, but they may do the wrong thing or they may say the wrong thing and and might upset someone that they're actually trying to help. And so sometimes that can be paralyzing for people who don't know how to be an ally. How would you guide people in kind of getting out of that discomfort and helping them take the steps they need to get past that discomfort of maybe saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing when they're trying to to help? So I think the first thing is to know that you are going to make mistakes. You are going to mess it up. It is not easy. Most all of us have not been trained to talk about these issues. In fact, we have been socialized to explicitly avoid talking about issues of race and to avoid doing or saying things that upset the status quo. Our systems actually reward people for not saying things, for not stepping up. And so the first thing I would say is just accept that you are going to make mistakes. And that is super hard to do. Um, We don't like making mistakes. This is an area of lots and lots of discomfort. So you're going to have to have a way to deal with that discomfort when it does come up. I would highly recommend having another white ally that you can talk about these issues with because it's going to happen and you're going to want to process it with somebody and you do not need to be burdening people of color with with processing that or making you feel better about the mistake that you made. I think that owning it is really important. So when you make a mistake, own it, tell it to somebody else, don't keep it hidden. I know that, you know, I cringe at a lot of the things that I've done or said in the last two years as I've been trying to learn how to say things better and do things better. I've made microaggressions and we've done talks together on implicit bias and microaggressions, right? So this is something that I feel like I know quite a lot about in terms of recognizing and addressing microaggressions. I give lots of talks on this and I still make microaggressions and I don't always catch them right away. I don't always catch them when other folks make mistakes right away. But in each talk that I give about microaggressions, I 
tried to bring in an example of my most recent microaggression that I made. And I own that. And I say, this is what I did. And here's how I apologized for it. So I think of it as like kind of building a muscle, right, that's never been used before. You probably didn't even know you had this muscle. It didn't really exist before. And the only way for it to get better is for you to use it. There's just no other way. Like we can't get better unless we make the mistakes and, and have the conversations. It's really hard. You're going to make mistakes, and that's the only way that it gets better. I'm, I'm just thinking about a, a meeting that I was on in the last week, and there was something said about white folks being marginalized and, and how do we, you know, how do we not be divisive when we're talking about this work, right? And I know because there were a lot of us kind of private chatting to one another, like, and no one knew what to say. And it took a while before I said something. And I'm, I've been trying to process that, right? Like, how, how, why, why did it take so long for anyone to, to say something in that space? And I was like, is it just fear? And I've talked to a lot of people since then. And I think one thing is fear. One thing is our socialization to not talk about these issues. Another is just exhaustion, right? Like I, I'm at the end of my day and I'm tired and I, and I, you know, don't know how to say this in a way without offending somebody. I don't have the bandwidth to think about it and think about how to say it nicely enough to, to not offend somebody else. And then just the positionality of, of who was it that, that made that comment and why did some people feel comfortable speaking and other people didn't feel comfortable speaking. And I've talked to other black folks about this incident and, and I think that the, the biggest answer I've seen is just that people don't feel comfortable until they see others doing it. Right. And that's what helps. Right. So you saying something, even if it didn't feel comfortable, it didn't come out the way you want, that is actually powerful in and of itself to help other allies speak up the next time. Yeah. And I can I can say that I've been present when you have spoken up several times and I always admire the courage that it takes to do that because it's tough, especially when you know someone had good intentions and you worry about hurting their feelings or, you know, being off putting. But you have literally stepped up. Almost every time that I've seen something like that come up, and that's not it's not an easy thing to to do. So it is interesting because some of the things that I'll say in these spaces, working against racism and and ableism and other discriminations, it does take courage. But I would also say that eventually, I don't consider myself courageous because I've gotten past that in in some areas. Right? It doesn't take courage. It's not it's not hard for me to say what I want to say at certain times, right? Because I have built up that muscle. And so I don't want to, you know, continue taking credit for something that at this point actually is easy. Like, so there, there is hope that it does get easier with time. So. Oh, that's good to know. So, you know, you and I are, we do a, several DEI related things together. We're on a, a task force at our medical school that meets monthly. You and I direct a, what we would call a faculty book club. It's called Inclusive Conversations, where we, have faculty join us for discussions on books and articles and movies and podcasts. A lot of different resources have you know, kind of crossed our the faces of our, our book club over the past year. I think my question for you would be, for someone who is ready to start this journey, this process, what would be some resources that you would recommend 
for the person desiring to to be an ally who wants to do more and, and learn more? So I'm a book person, I know. not, not yeah. actually a podcast person. <laughs> yeah, you are a book <laughs> person for sure. And I know that the the books that I read at the beginning of my journey were White Fragility by Robin DeAngelo and So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Oluo. And I've actually read both of those two or three times now because I actually find them helpful to revisit at different points along the journey. But those are the two that I read at the very beginning of my own journey. I do think that it's important to be following the lead of people of color in this space. And so I don't want to always highlight books by white folks. Two others that I've read a little bit farther on in, in my journey are Allies and Advocates by Amber Cabral and How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. I think those are both very powerful. One of the things that I did when I was first starting because I wanted to make allyship a habit was I got one of those planners that's like uh, – is it's actually a – five-year planner that has like one page a day on it. And I made myself put each day the the one thing that I did or learned related to allyship and, and our DEIJ work. And that after probably, I don't know, 60 to 90 days of doing that regularly, then it became a habit, right? Then I'm doing something every day already. I don't need to be like reminding myself to do something every day. Uh, I also really, really like the Anti-Racism Daily newsletter. It is wonderful. It is always filled with things and topics that I wouldn't have thought about, as well as action items and quizzes that you can do to test your knowledge, you know, of the articles that they've posted throughout the week. I really like what they do there, and that is another really nice daily habit that you can do to keep this work going. I, I've seen a lot of people ask, you know, where do we start? What can I do? That sort of thing. And I really want to stress that we should not be asking people of color for their uncompensated advice on where we should focus our efforts, right? One, we shouldn't be asking for uncompensated anything, <laughs> right? Two, you're the best person that knows, you know, what your strengths are and what your passions are, and and you should be using that to to decide where to start. Right, the the starting place is different for each person. Besides your own self education, I think that Ijeoma Oluo in her book "So You Want to Talk About Race" gives a really nice exercise in thinking about your various areas of privilege. So I think that's a, a nice place to start, going through that and actually revisiting that as you think more and learn more and, and grow deeper into your allyship skills. Think about where you have the most privilege and start there, right? Are you a leader in your organization? Do you lead meetings, right? Do you have influence over policies? Start there. Are you already active in a community organization, right? Start there. What are their policies? What are they, what are they doing to help people of color in whatever other area that they're in, right? And if you are working with people experiencing homelessness, right, have you thought about how race disproportionately impacts housing in this country, right? Have you started learning things along those lines? 
Are you in a book club, right? Whether that's, you know, through your organization or just with your, your friends, you know, outside of work, you know, have you thought about selecting books by and about more diverse people, right? So are you a parent? Can you start having conversations with your children, right? There's any number of places that, that people can start. And so I just encourage people to think about the spaces that they're already in and start there. I know that I'm on lots and lots of committees, and I just made it a habit to bring up something related to DEI on every committee meeting that I go to. And again, once you start doing it regularly, it just becomes a habit. So the last question I have is, which is going to follow this comment that I have, to use a football analogy, you have a motor unlike anybody that I've ever come across. You just... You are so dedicated, and the amount of things you do related to this cause is super impressive. The question that I have is, and I think this may help others to kind of draw some motivation, where do you find your motivation? What, When you don't feel like doing something, what is it that gets you up and into action? So it is really interesting because I feel like this work, like we said earlier, really is exhausting. And I have always thought of myself as somebody with, you know, boundless energy. And I feel like that's one of the strengths that I bring to this work, right? I'm I'm fresh. I have lots of energy. I'm ready to do the work. And it is so exhausting to do day in and day out. So I just appreciate recognizing that, right? And and acknowledging that it, that it's a lot of work. And I think that we need to have couple things here. So one is self-compassion, right? And thinking about like, well, what have I done? Like, I think it's easy to, you know, see how big these issues are and become overwhelmed and and forget that, that we are making daily strides to work against racism. And thinking about how much I've grown and the things that I have done and acknowledging those things is, is helpful to me. I think what I said earlier about making this work a habit also makes it easier so that it doesn't feel like an extra thing. It's just something that I do. It's part of my day-to-day work and just like anything else that I do. And the last thing that I would say is how important self-care is. And sometimes in, a, in my allyship groups, you know, we'll say that the topic of the week is self-care. Right? What are we doing to take care of ourselves so that we can stay resourced and keep doing this work? And I think you know that is just as important as anything else that we could be you know learning or teaching ourselves. So I've started going to therapy myself, which has been very helpful to have that professional space to think about these issues in and to to heal myself. I talk with other white, folks who want to be allies in this space and we support one another and just recognizing when when I do need a break and you know I I did sleep in today so you know that's okay too <laughs> well Ashley thank you so much for giving your time to not only this podcast because I know you're not a podcast person but also you know everything that you've done I value our friendship and I value uh, how much you mean to our institution um, so it was a pleasure to get to sit down and, and talk with you on the record. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lean In. If you have enjoyed this episode or others, please take a moment to go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. And if you're feeling very generous, 
take some time to leave a comment. Those are the things that are really going to be able to keep this show going. Thank you. Let me know your thoughts about this episode. I'm easy to reach on Twitter at Jabron Pasha, on Instagram at What Medicine Did, and on unlockingimplicitbias.com. Thanks for leaning in with me.